Welcome to episode 54 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre. If you'd like to be a guest on Stageworthy or just want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use, and consider leaving a comment or rating. Albert Schultz is the artistic director of Soul Pepper. Lorenzo Savaini is the young family director of design. We sat down to talk about Soul Pepper's It's a Wonderful Life, on which Albert is the director and Lorenzo is the set and costume designer. Thank you for both for, for talking to me, Albert and Lorenzo. Um, it's a Wonderful Life is one of those uh, movies that people love. Uh, my girlfriend has watched it every Christmas uh, uh, for as long as she can remember. I was never quite as in love with it as she right. was uh, until recently. But it's one of those one of those those movies that that, that people watch every year. Yeah, I'm curious about uh, a lot of things because your uh, Soul Pepper is presenting it as a as a radio play. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of questions that I have. But just to start with, uh, why programming in uh, a theater season? It's a Wonderful Life. Probably I should answer that. Yeah, one. that's your <laughs> We have, uh, in the last few years, been expanding on this notion of uh, taking December and turning into a family festival. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, for the future of the theater, as well as for the present, it's really important that we get um, several generations coming to the theater together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also in an age when um, when we, have, uh, we don't have places that routinely we go, which in, you know, in previous generations... Um, we would go to church together to commune in whatever mm-hmm. way that might be. And that was much more common in our society now in a sort of secularized society. There's many advantages, but there are, I think, also some certain disadvantages, such as going as a family unit and experiencing something together with other um, multi-generational communities. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the, the broad thing. And this uh, this particular piece is a piece that, again, um, right now, as we look at, you know, we went into rehearsals the week after, you know, Armageddon. Right. Um, and uh, to be able to to tell the story and go back to the story, you know, I don't know if you heard this today, but when Diego was reading Potter, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God. Gosh, I mean the the rhetoric coming yeah. out of Mr. Potter in this, in terms of what kind of you know what kind of layabouts will we have if we just mm. treat everyone a certain way? And it sounded like a kind of political rhetoric we've heard yeah. of late. So I think I think that's in terms of the spirit of the piece. It's it's great to get together, um, multi generationally, sit down, experience a narrative that reminds us to um, of. What is what our blessings are, and mm-hmm. also reminds us uh, about the value of thinking mm-hmm. um, not only of ourselves but but of others in our community mm-hmm. less fortunate. Um, and then, from a producer's point of view, you also say, well, because it's such a title and so mm-hmm. beloved, mm-hmm. people are probably going to want to come see it. Yeah. So hopefully, 
They will. And hopefully when they hear this podcast, they'll go, right, I should want to go see that. (laughs) Right? Absolutely. And then the added uh, idea of doing it as a radio play, which is... um, Really, kind of hard to describe, but it, but it, but the idea being that you are in the audience and you're watching a radio company of actors in a radio studio put on uh, a production of "It's a Wonderful Life." So you are seeing both the making of it, mm-hmm. and then you are also experiencing the the outcome of the performers doing the text. And so you could almost just sit there and close your eyes, and in in one sense, just experience it as if you are listening to it on the radio. Mm-hmm. And then you can open your eyes and you're going to see like half a dozen actors darting about the stage doing uh, classic Foley work. Hmm. And for those, Foley being the, yeah. the sound effect right. stuff, you know. Yeah. Which is, I have to say, it's, it's an exciting kind of, uh, you know, uh, sonic event for an audience. Just kind of see, hear the door, see mm-hmm. how the door is being made. Mm. And, and most of the time, the sounds you're hearing are never being there in our case here as well, that it's the actors themselves, whether mm. it's vocally, or it's um, some object hitting another object to make the sound of a drawer opening. Mm. But it's never a, just a drawer on stage opening. So you're seeing a really uh, a fun, creative way of telling story through sound. Mm. And that's something that's going to be um, as enjoyable, I think, an experience as the play itself. Because I was wondering when I heard about about the production, I was wondering how you. First, I thought, "Oh, it's a Wonderful Life," and then I read that it was a radio play, and I thought, "How do you stage that for the theater as a radio play?" Well, it actually ends up in a strange way. I mean, Lorenzo and I, when we work together, tend to um, me as a director and Lorenzo as a designer, we tend to try to make a space that allows for the actor's imagination to. Um, be more engaged in the creation of the the story, the telling of the story, and as a result, the audience's imagination is more actively engaged. And what's so interesting about this piece is um, there's several layers of engagement. The first, is, as Lorenzo says, is we're watching people make sounds that aren't people sounds. Mm-hmm. That's just fun. It's yeah. like a party game. And you're seeing a whole bunch of people. Now you're hearing them do it in the context of, so you're watching the reality of a studio of radio performers and sound makers. Um, then you are getting a story told, so that you're engaging in the story. And you have all of these realities playing at once, which are following a particular narrative. The added one that this one gives is it's actually an adaptation of Frank Capra's film on radio. Mm. So in other words, it's, we're not just taking an adaptation of the story and right. instead of making a film, now we're going to make a radio play. We're doing a radio play of the film. And the fun in that is actually create, knowing that you can close your eyes. I have a speaker in the rehearsal hall mm-hmm. while everyone's on their various mics and sound tables and I can listen and the pictures that come up funnily enough mm-hmm. are not pictures of my imagined um, streetscape, they're actually pictures of Frank Capra's mm. imagined streetscape. Mm. And that's what's the added, you get this, not only do you engage the audience's imagination, but you engage their imagination in the creation of a nostalgic experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what this uniquely, what, what this does uniquely yeah. is, is you actively with the audience create a nostalgic experience. It didn't exist before. 
you walk into the room, you're looking at something that does nothing to it. But once the sounds start coming, mm-hmm. that active game of creating nostalgia happens and everything becomes sepia. That's, yeah, it's true. I'm kind of stealing this quote, but um, a really fantastic theater director, um, Simon McBurney, said that theater exists in the mind of the audience. It's not. It's the meeting. Mm-hmm. It's the meeting of one's imagination with with what's happening on stage to create this thing we call theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like um, one could just, you know, at one point when I first read it, I thought, well, why aren't we just doing? Why don't? It was very hard on paper to see. Uh, how um, interesting and exciting the the making of it would be. Mm. So I was wondering, well, why aren't we just doing the? Why don't we just do a theater production of the movie? And uh, you know, you first of all, you could never capture, I think, live. You know, what that film, especially mm. in its kind of um, early stages of filmmaking. It's kind of kind of got a really interesting cinematography speed. It's got a naive quality to yeah. it. And really uh, doing it as a radio play is inherently a very theatrical idea, mm-hmm. a very theatrical way of telling the story that gives me a reason to tell this story on stage mm-hmm. rather than try to just copy-paste a movie on stage, right. which is not very theatrical. Not very theatrical and very difficult to do because yeah. a, you know, a movie can change, can change scenes much more quickly than we can in the theater. That's right. <clears throat> and an audio play can do that as well. So yeah. The, yeah. Do you think, I mean, this is sort of, I don't, nobody's seen it or heard it yet, but I'm wondering if the idea of the nostalgia is the audio, the fact that it's just audio recreating that movie is sort of helps with the nostalgia factor that, that because it's happening mostly in the mind that the nostalgia is, Enhanced rather than just sort of seeing it. I think absolutely. I think it absolutely is. In a way that that once you supply, Mm -hmm. once you supply the visual information, Mm -hmm. um, if it's too on the nose, if it's too representational of what you're supposed to be seeing, it in fact does the opposite of what they think it's doing. Mm -hmm. It actually shuts down my options Mm -hmm. for what that might look like. So I recently saw a big production and a very popular production of a, of a a children's play, a book or children's book, Mm -hmm. an adaptation Mm -hmm. of a children's book, which I had seen, I read as one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. And when Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so or the queen of so-and-so or the king of so-and-so appeared on the stage, they had full on costumes and their, their, their um, castle was, you know, everything yeah. in the book was was given to me visually. Mm-hmm. So consequently, it was I sat back and there was nothing for me to do. Right, mm-hmm. and and with young people, if you're trying as we are to bring them into the thing, what we have to do, and this with something like this is, we have to use theater as the place that engages them in that, so that they're not going they're getting so much served to them every moment yeah. uh, on a screen. Where they have they have uh, no choice over what that forest looks like in their mind because it's shown to them on a screen. Mm-hmm. Every so they have constant access to that. Yeah, we you know the theater I think is the one holdout place where we can actually say, no, hold on a second, allow it to yeah. books. Books are the yeah. one, but what a book doesn't have is the communal experience. Right. The theater should be like reading a book communally. Right. But there's a kind of, what the theater offers is a, is a 
kind of the beautiful shared magic trick, which is a transformation mm-hmm. that happens. So a chair can become an airplane. Right. Whereas it kind of can't on film. You'd be wondering what the, is that person <laughs> yes, saying? Yeah, yeah. Whereas there's just, there's a kind of convention or multiple conventions that you can direct, that you can establish that everybody agrees that that chair right now mm-hmm. can become a plane. And it's mm-hmm. kids have no problem doing it. No. Yeah. None at all. They do it all the time, very quickly. And so really, I think, um, uh, Unfortunately, you know, a lot of work we do, we tend to think about simply, um, simply telling or serving the, the, the narrative that's on the page. And so if it tells us that it should take place in the living room with windows, then of course we just do what it tells us to do and right. I, or some would. And, I, and I'd like to think that the question is now, what is, what is our theatrical living room? What does mm-hmm. it mean to be in that place? And what's so great about this piece is it immediately, um, you know, for me as a designer, you know, you, you, you get all kinds of different work that, com- that, that comes at you. And sometimes it's, um, uh, challenging from a, a psychological point of view, trying to understand these characters, who they are, what makes them tick, uh, as well as what kind of environment to put them in. In this case, it's one of those joyous, also joyous experiences where you can, it's about delving into, um, the, in this particular setting and in the forties to get mm. to kind of um, bathe in a beautiful romantic mm. world that is the forties uh, or our nostalgic idea of it. And we're setting it in, in a radio studio, of course. So you, you have the, I've had the joy of being able to uh, examine and look at all the different kinds of radio studios that may have existed in and around that period. Mm. And so I think we are trying to capture uh, very simply, a kind of nostalgic, um, uh, but also um, it has a kind of a beautiful style to it as well that, that I think um, uh, fits the piece. But it's taken me; it took me a little bit to know that right. I'm not design. I'm not designing for the movie. I'm designing for these actors mm-hmm. uh, that are in the studio. So so that I'm so that the character. They're not the characters in the play, mm-hmm. of course. They're the actors that came in that day to do to do this work. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been a kind of real treat. It's really different than you would normally tackle a play. Yeah, I'm very curious about designing for this idea of the radio play. Mm-hmm. Um, are you designing on strictly the radio studio level? Are you designing visually the radio studio level? Are you like yeah. where do you draw yeah. the line between the character and the actor in this yeah. case? It, you know, it's an interesting question because um, I think. One of the specifically when it comes to costumes, the two characters of um, Mary and George, uh, uh, they I thought it was important uh, when we were kind of looking at what they could be wearing. You know, it wouldn't hurt to evoke the characters of the movie a little bit. Um, and I don't. Do we have them playing other characters? No. No. So on stage, you're seeing two actors play. Mm. Those characters only. So it seemed to give us sort of the opportunity to evoke um, our nostalgia for that movie mm-hmm. a little bit. But otherwise, it became kind of fair game. Uh, and to, people are playing multiple characters on stage, or most of them. So uh, it really, with the I'm working with the actor to develop who that that radio actor is. Mm. And they're and they you know so we're working specifically one on one together, but I also have to think of 
um, the bigger picture that not everybody can play the sort of neurotic, ambitious mm-hmm. radio actor yeah. that we have to find if they're going to explore a kind of type that we have to, you know, we, and we're also trying to find real human beings. We're mm-hmm. not um, simply just uh, drawing broad characters. Right. So, so there's uh, kind of nuances in there that the actors are, are figuring out. All, and all of that becomes a kind of backdrop because you're, we're, oh, ne- we're never exactly. focusing on that. What's right. fun, though, too, is finding the where a where an actor can, or where we as a team can create interesting links between that person that is there as an actor and the character that we know they're playing. So mm-hmm. the George and Mary, the other one that's only playing one character is Clarence Oddbody, the actor who's playing Oliver Dennis, who's playing Clarence Oddbody, the sort of guardian angel mm-hmm. who comes in. Um, we have purposely had him play only, everyone's playing many parts except right. those three. Right. And he plays just that part. And he is actually exploring sort of floating a little above everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, in And, and, um, that's we're having a lot of fun with figuring mm-hmm. out how he stands in the action and outside of the action in the studio, mm-hmm. and how does that become a reflection of what's going on in the story? Mm-hmm. We're also playing with to your question about design uh, and how much of it is the radio world, and that we're actually playing with a few places where we might. There's a word we use a lot, Lorenzo, where we might push push the aesthetic towards a sort of poetic realism as opposed Mm -hmm. to a naturalism. Mm -hmm. So there's a few places in it where we may um, push towards, push the radio show and the visual representation of that. There's one scene in particular that we're going to play with actually mimicking the scene in the movie so closely Mm -hmm. and even perhaps framing the scene um, as if it's on... So the rest of the, and that you kind of, in a perfect world, in my imagined world, you don't even notice it happening, mm. but suddenly you're watching a two shot in a movie right. that you recognize and a scene that you recognize and you recognize it visually as well as, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to play with when can we do that? When can we actually bring external visual elements or filmic elements into mm. our process, not not the imagined radio players' process, mm-hmm. but our theatrical process right. as, as creators of this of this production. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all. That's all. It may all go out. What it, what it seems like, and it seems to be, you know, this is Albert's extremely extremely good at this. But it becomes an editing process in a way. By the end, you kind of, in a way, it's like a big mixing board mm-hmm. of trying to figure out how much of this you can bring in, how much of that to to capture. What are you trying to capture with this particular moment? And so, yeah, as you say, it'll be interesting to see how imperceptible it could be, but yet suddenly you're you're drawing people in by simply how mm-hmm. you're mixing yeah. and editing. And you can probably see me just today, having sat sat and watched them go from mic to mic back to their chairs for two weeks. Now today, I just started doing little shapings, so adding adding hopefully almost imperceptible mm-hmm. art to what looks like a naturalistic. Um, process mm-hmm. of actors getting to a microphone. Right, you can do that, but the the story brain that's watching the the art brain starts to get a little restless mm-hmm. if it doesn't feel there's a there's a hand at play. And if you're really really clever, you can get away with playing your hand without anyone seeing you playing your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's yes, it's just a naturalistic radio play, except. 
that there are artful elements all the way through it. And that's what we want to mm-hmm. try to get. And you can't point to them afterwards. You just felt that there was, there was, um, you know, mm-hmm. there was some God in the details, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to just let it happen. Right. Um, and that's, that's trick. That's the end of the day. That's what our job is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard. I'm curious as, I mean, a lot of people, like I said earlier, are so familiar with the film. Um, are as an actor approaching something it i can imagine it being difficult not to hear the character from the film mm. in your reading um have you uh had to uh push past that embrace it uh how do you deal with with it's something a really like that? really good question it's one that we just that's what <laughs> raquel and gregory and i were just talking about gregory pressed who is playing george bailey until I think a week before we started rehearsals had never seen the film mm. actually hadn't seen the film, but what we do in rehearsal, because we're looking at the, we're saying, Oh, is there, um, is there a sound we're missing or is there something in this adaptation that is being missed that we, so we're actually screening. We'll read in our first week, we would read 10 pages and then we would screen those 10 pages mm. and then we would make little adjustments and then we'd go on again and Oh, okay. He did that. That's a, and I'm doing this on purpose in order to have the company constantly see the style of the playing. Mm-hmm. So, so when I talk, when I talked a minute ago about making it look like it's just life, but lifting it. The thing about Capra or Jimmy Stewart in particular as an actor is he he seems at all moments to be completely rooted in real. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't accept it if I if I played these scenes now with you and told you the level that yeah. he's committing to everything mm-hmm. he does. And he's a master at it, and it looks absolutely, Capra frames it such a way that it absolutely looks like people getting through a, a day. Yeah. It's an important day, but it's just a day. But even walking in the street and having a casual conversation has a lifted aesthetic to it. Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit lifted and lives on a, a more heightened plane in this stuff. And we need to figure out how to do that. So, so we've been screening it. And today I started noticing that some of his speeches sounded different. Mm. And he actually said, you know what? I just decided. And he's now going through that. He's going to, he's listening and he's not going to imitate. He's not going to, wah, wah, wah. He's no, not going to yeah. try to do that or anything, but he is definitely going to all of them. You know, I'm going to encourage them to, to, to play, uh, the size of the thoughts mm-hmm. and the specificity of the thoughts mm-hmm. uh, and not be shy because, again, the audience, people that haven't seen the movie will hear it beautifully played because right. they're beautiful actors. But those that have seen the movie won't be spending part of the time going, yeah, but that's not the mm-hmm. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. it could be a disadvantage yeah. if no, you make right. your, you know, mm-hmm. it's not about, this is, it's a it's a radio drama of Frank Capra's movie. Right. So eventually he will sound like Gregory Press. But, it will sound like Gregory Plesch playing George Bailey in the movie. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and that's, I think, what it should yeah. sound like yeah. in a strange way. Um, it, it, you were speaking, uh, like, right when we sat down about uh, the, the family aspect of this, this part of the season mm-hmm. um, and the importance of that. Um, this is something that's been growing over time with Salt Pepper, I think. I think it started with uh, an annual production of A Christmas Carol and then just sort of grew from there. A biannual. That it, mm. well, we did it every other year, and then <sighs> and mm. then started doing it every mm. year, thinking you know because we thought well we won't be able to sell it out every year, mm. and then we tried it and I'm like oh yes we can <laughs> because people and people come back and people yeah. want it at this time of year. Well, because people people love their Christmas traditions, right? Yeah. They love their holiday traditions, and That's right. and uh, just like people will go to. 
uh, the new Ross Petty show every year. That's right. They, they want something that they go to. They want, watch Charlie Brown every year. They watch That's a Christmas right. Carol. That's they right. want to come to this. The Nutcracker yeah. sells out. You know, the, yeah. they just know they put on the Nutcracker. It's sold that, out. Yeah, this is their moneymaker. So, so um, what we're trying to do is is keep something. You know, we have a production of Christmas Carol, which is an mm-hmm. exquisite production. So we just keep it. We keep it alive. Mm-hmm. The cast has changed over the years. Um, Joe's still in it as Scrooge. You know, there's there's a couple of Joe and John Jarvis um, that have been with it for you know for 15 years. Mm. Um, but there's always new people. But we know that that there's no you don't mess with that. Yeah. But at the same time, what we're trying to do is create new traditions. Yes. So we built an alligator pie, which we're bringing back for the third time. And Mm -hmm. we hope that that becomes a tradition. Mm -hmm. We hope that this one becomes a tradition. That's the plan that that we're building and building on these. And I think it's quite frankly something that the whole city should be thinking about. Because it's a fantastic way to bring people to the city. It's a fantastic to bring people that are in the city out. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a great way of building future audiences. And it's it's just... important as a society yeah. to do this yeah. together. I, I tell you, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old, Roman, and um, it's this time of year when, obviously, you know, you're being bombarded. And you, mm. you can't walk down the street without being told what this time of year seems to be about. And um, and there's so much consumerism sort of being shoved down your throat. And that and that's, it, you know, that's part of it. But it's it's not really... Um, the a community experience, mm-hmm. and I think it, um, it, it is so important. And it, and it happens, you know. I'm, so now, I have this amazing thing where, I, for the first time last year, brought Roman. I guess he was in two and a half. Brought him to his first play ever, which was Alligator Pie, mm-hmm. which we put on, and he was like transfit. Like he did not take his eyes off the stage. For an hour, mm-hmm. at least, now, yeah. and uh, clapped for every number. Absolutely loved it, and you can't. I mean, it just you know it fills your heart, but you you feel suddenly you go, oh my god, theater is a going to church. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an opportunity for a community to you see other people's kids, and it's so easy and obvious to experience that community experience when you're seeing a family a family mm-hmm. show. But that same experience is happening when you see Chekhov, or yes. when you see um, Guys and Dolls. It's all it's all coming together in one room to focus and meditate and concentrate on something. And you're a part of it as an audience. It's your energy yeah. is going into it, and your focus is going into it. So I think of any other time of the year, the most where we're so distracted and so kind of stressed out about um, meeting expectations of this season, mm-hmm. yeah. that it's an amazing thing to stop and... Uh, just sit in a chair and, and, and kind of experience something together. Yeah. And uh, and I think this show is like mm-hmm. going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Way. It's so much fun. And we're having more fun in rehearsal than <clears throat> probably is legal. Did you, totally. did you, did you, I mean, the idea of doing a, a radio show, I think that's something relatively new for, like, I don't think Soul Pepper has done anything like that no. before. It was there, Unless was there any kind of, uh, yes. It was there any kind of, uh, uh, trepidation about what that would be like what the what the rehearsal process would be a like. little bit i mean one of the one of the things that mm-hmm. i'm finding we were laughing about i'm finding that it's it's um it's exhausting mm-hmm. because we're, we're, we do only five hour days and normally often you work 10 to 
10 to 6 is a normal rehearsal day. Um, when I, because I'm also running the company, I never do that. I do a five-hour day, so we call them short days. But even those short days seem really long because you're, the amount of concert, you're literally concentrating on everything. Like you're mm, concentrating yeah. on how people are walking, how people are breathing, um, uh, a scene that seems so simple, you know, the, the scene in the drugstore. He comes into the drugstore and he gets given a suitcase by Mr. Gower and they talk and then he goes and he tries a, does a wish at the, the uh, cigar lighter and he goes outside onto the street and runs into his friends and gets in a cab and goes home. Right. Okay. Easy. On the page, easy. If it was a play, you'd do it like that. Yeah. If it, But the time it takes in a rehearsal to open the door and have the sound in the inside be different than the sound on the outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To have the internal and the external sound, the atmosphere change, and all you have are microphones and actors. Mm -hmm. We're not doing sound effects. There's no, because it's 1940, so there's no kind of complex computer. It's literally live mics and a bunch of people, and we have to... We have to walk outside into a spring day with cars going by and bicycles and birds and whatever else. You might need to set that up. And then when you get in the cab, you got to get in the cab and the cab's got to drive away. Mm. Because that's the filmic piece that we saw. So right. creating the, the concentration it takes for everyone as you close your eyes and listen to a little speaker and go, okay, no, actually, okay, can we go back? We need that one footstep to be a little bit lighter and come half a second earlier. Mm. Come. And so be. You, you're processing stuff so much that at the end of two hours, I'm like <laughs> burnt out. Is, yeah. is it taking never, longer to rehearse this than you thought it would because of all of that? No. And the, here's the other thing, though, that happens. It actually, that stuff takes really, but we got through the play in detail much quicker mm. because you're working on that stuff. We still have to go back and fix a lot of it. But the really cool thing is there's, and I do love this, there's no actor anxiety in the None whatsoever. An actor anxiety is just something you always deal with. I don't yeah. care what situation is, what play, there's always actor anxiety. Right. It's usually attached to one of two things. I'm not sure who my character is. Mm-hmm. And two, I don't know what my lines. I right. don't know my lines yet. Right. And those are the two things that, that, that they're, um, who am I in this play? And what do I have to say? Right. Those are the things that make actors really anxious. In this rehearsal hall, there's none of that. They know exactly who they are. In mm. fact, someone's already done their performance for them. Mm. Jimmy Stewart already did your performance <laughs> for you. And it's written down on that page that you get to carry with you every minute right. of this run mm. until we close. And so what's amazing, which this is what I didn't understand or expect, was that when we go in the rehearsal hall, it's all creative. Hmm. it's all easy. It's all fun. It's all creative. At times, it's tricky because you have to go back and it gets but I haven't even noticed anyone get frustrated. We've been doing mm-hmm. this two weeks. There's not even really any moments of you're just people are laughing and working and laughing and working, but there's no anxiety huh. for those reasons. There'll be anxiety once. But it's, it's it, I mean, all we, we talk about this a lot too. I mean, uh, uh, we have a great group of um, actors that are able and and uh, to kind of make something both being on the inside as an actor but also as a theater maker, kind of being able to also step outside the work. There's a kind of expectation I think we have of everybody that we work with is that your responsibility doesn't begin and end with just your line or, mm. or your work or me. It's just not my costume. It's There's a responsibility to being able to step outside the work and uh, 
leave essentially kind of the anxiety or the personal ego anxiety at the door. And this piece feels more than it is so much about its architectural construction that you almost always feel uh, it's about you're building something from the outside. Mm -hmm. There's so many parts that make up the building, so to speak, that um, room has to be made, attention has to be given by everybody. So uh, everyone's kind of, Albert, seem to seem like you're conducting in a way, mm-hmm. but you have a whole bunch of people like a great orchestra that you have to be, can't just be like only waiting for your violin part. You are in tune mm-hmm. with everybody. So right. it requires a kind of um, an opening up in a way to everybody. So you, it's a, in that way, it's a really lovely experience. We have that scene. So Raquel Duffy mm-hmm. is one of our great actors is playing Mary Bailey. In it. And she has a scene where she's playing a, um, She's in a taxi cab playing the scene. She just got married and they're in a taxi cab and they're heading out for their honeymoon and the money comes yeah. out and, and then they get stopped because the depression hits. Do you right. remember this? So she is actually playing the scene, playing this romantic scene. And she says her last line. She says, oh, George. And then she makes the sound of a car screeching. And she does it. <laughs> oh, George. Like that. And it's my favorite, one of my favorite things because that's exactly what Lorenzo's talking about. She can be entirely in the thing, mm-hmm. but she's at service to the story. Right. So she immediately switches. The note. When I ask her to do it, she laughs because it's so fast. Yeah. And everyone laughs when they hear it in rehearsal. You won't laugh in the audience. Right. We laugh because we know no actor has to, in the middle of a scene, like finish their scene and immediately sound like a car. Yes, yeah. Except now. So we laugh at that. But she does that and there's no question. It's just fun and you're at the service of the whole. But I imagine that's like a specific skill that radio actors of the day possess. Like they're more technicians that way than, right. say, uh, an, you know, an actor, their performance can be in the editing, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. in a film, yeah. that they do their thing, but they haven't kind of a clue what it's going to look like or how they appear. Whereas in this, there's a kind of, they're both, of course, their voice and their intention is important, but they're, in a sense, they're also technicians that they get, they get what they have to do to evoke something on the other side. And yeah. And all the stuff of, you know, playing, playing a very intimate scene, playing Mm -hmm. a very intimate scene and then walking out of the room and just kind of leaving from the room. I've just moved. I don't know what it sounds like, but I've moved. 18 inches back, but it probably sounded like I left the room or something yeah. that, that they're, they're having to do all of that. They're having to play scenes for people around a mic, but they can't look at each other. Right. And, th- and that, again, I think that's so exciting for the audience. It's so fun to watch people playing a passionate argument, for instance, but they don't look at each other. Right. They're, they're playing to the mic. So they, you got four people like this playing to the mic, and they have, and the actor has this because they can't knowledge. look at each other because they'd be looking away because from the then mic. they're off the yeah. mic, and it sounds like they're in the next room. Right. Um, so it was neat to actually Mumbi, your assistant director, put together a really great package around just understanding the the world of radio actors at the time, just in terms of you know, their profession, and it was really really interesting, just in terms of I think that they're cut from a slightly different cloth mm-hmm. than a kind of film actor or stage actor, and. Uh, and even that kind of um, nuances in the world of hierarchy between Foley and you know that they I think they can right. behave more. And, yeah, you know, and we've so we've but of necessity, but also for we've taken creative license around some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and letting because we've done we did a uh, made an adaptation of of um, Somerset Mom's of Human Bondage, which. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of years ago, that used a lot of these techniques, mm-hmm. a lot of live 
Foley, a lot of live sound effects, but all done on stage by the actors. Mm-hmm. So there was not a single recorded sound in that production, and yet it was a very sound-rich production. And a lot of the actors that are doing this show were also in that show, so they're kind of used to it. But because of that, it just seemed strange for us as a company to have one person at a sound table yeah. and all the actors just acting. Yeah. So we've actually we've actually brought the sound effects to the front of the stage. So we've mm-hmm. set up three front mics, and we very often have you see actors playing a scene on this thing and actors making a fire over here. Right. And that's just visually, and that's that's poetic license. Well, with everybody working like that, there isn't, for the actor in the theater, there isn't really an offstage. They are right. involved, totally. and the concentration of just, like, knowing, I'm have, okay, the sound, like, having to listen so intently, yeah. that almost sounds electric to me. It is pretty yeah. electric. Right. And yeah. they're never, yeah, and you're right, they don't ever leave, mm. and there's no... There's no sort of oh I you know not till my next scene. Mm-hmm. They're 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 going in the crowd scene yeah. in a second, and then they're then they're scratching something across a file in the next mm-hmm. section very carefully, and then they're um, playing playing one character and then switching to another character, and they're mm-hmm. playing it on different mics at different distances. So it's yeah. technically it's a very complex yeah. orchestral piece. I often forget, just in terms of thinking about about It's a Wonderful Life, the politics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the things that I think about when I think of, of it, is I think of Clarence and I think of the bridge and I think of the iconic scene after, you know, he makes his wish and he comes back to the town. But what I forget about is all of the things that Potter does and all the things that Potter's after, which, like you said earlier, are a little bit more yeah. uh, important to point out now after the American election. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting to do this now, not having, you couldn't possibly know what the, what the, mm-hmm. the outcome mm-hmm. was going to be. And that, that now this, the, this, this play resonates more, uh, as a result of that. That's, That's why right. our actor playing Potter is going to have an orange face. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. A, and a big comb over. Yeah. Um, it actually went through my head and I thought, should we make him give him just a little New York accent? You know, but right. we won't go that far. I think people will make the connection, but yes, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, we were ta- talking on the first day. We said when we started, um, when we, when Obama got elected the first time, we were doing um, Raisin in the Sun mm-hmm. here. And so, of course, the cat, you know, it was a major event for the yeah. cast, and everyone was watching that. And Trump got elected, and on we had just, it was on our second day of rehearsal for this play. And very often, I find that fate turns it that way that, that the, the art that's being made tends to somehow mm-hmm. speak, speak to the time. Yeah. Um, and this, uh, this play speaks directly to the issue that that you know has come to a head with the trump election but but we saw back in 2008 with fanny mac etc and i mean like the whole um the whole thing about the deregulation of the of the mortgage industry and and like so much of the stuff uh that that we've been reading about in the papers and the horrors that have been falling out uh over the last several years are exactly the issues that are at the the center of this piece yeah it's hard i mean the the, it is possible to get a little bogged down in some of the, the technicalities of, of, of you know, the savings alone and the, the stuff that's going on with the bank. But I think that, that it is overall the story about, you know, I think that it does speak to the things that are happening now, which is interesting that a movie and a, a show from that far back can, can resonate for us mm-hmm. now. 
Um, I would like to ask a couple more, a little bit more about uh, uh, just salt pepper in general. Yeah. Um, lately, I mean, the the mandate of salt pepper, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, has has been uh, modern classics or classic uh, theater. Um, however, one thing that I've been really happy to see over the last few years is more original. Canadian work was there a particular impetus to to start fostering that work as opposed to just do the the classical uh, uh, work? Yeah, uh, um, yes. Um, essentially, so pretty organic. Yeah, pretty organic. We we started out we started out as um, as a classical repertory company because Toronto didn't have one. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there was a group of us uh, who didn't want to have to leave town in order, you know, we had families or whatever, mm-hmm. or lives here, or careers here, and we wanted to be able to do the work that we loved and we'd been brought up on in our own town. And we did mm-hmm. that, and there was a, a huge reaction to that. But very quickly, um, any any kind of um, theater institution of any value and any of any scope cannot be narrowly defined and and this what we realized as we grew inside the community and as as we invited more and more people in uh is that um in order to be alive you have to be uh you have to be responding to not only what is sitting on a shelf Mm -hmm. but what is being spoken and what is being written currently not only in your uh in your world but in your community mm-hmm. and that did that that, uh, that came a few years later because the first thing we had to do was establish a company and we right. established the company based on these sort of known works but but we we began doing adaptations and translations uh, in our very first year uh, people still think oh yeah the classical company but we were doing we were um, adapting plays very early mm-hmm. on like Platonov was we were less than a year old and we were doing that uh, we did the North American premiere of an unknown Chekhov play, which we mm-hmm. adapted, um, and then many, many others since. So we've done it all, uh, translation and adaptation, all through our life. It's really only in the last five years that we've taken on full-on original plays, Kim's Convenience mm-hmm. being yeah. the first that we did. And because Kim's Convenience had so little success, we decided not to do any more. Um, <laughs> this is going nowhere. Yeah. Sorry, what place? Yeah, yeah, it's called, yeah. Um, we were just talking about Lorenzo said, I've lit that. He, he did the lighting design for that. And we've probably done, we probably lit it 12 times. Or something. How it's many provinces everywhere. do we have? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's been absolutely everywhere. And of course, TV now. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it's, I think it's really important for a, 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 an organization like this to have all of that going on. Mm-hmm. Just as, and we've started to make, um, to re to recommit um, to making to making sure that as we're bringing all this new work in and as a new generation of artists is coming that that we've made a recommitment in our at our training level but also on what we're going to put on stage to make sure that we are still holding on to those great works that got us here in the first place. Mm-hmm. I don't just mean Soul Pepper. I mean yeah. all of us. Yeah. You know, Aeschylus and, and uh, Shakespeare and Chekhov and Ibsen, um, they got us all here in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if we let go of that uh, in this city, and there's, you know, we have the, we're the one institution that has the resources to do works of that side right. while at the same time investing in new work. Yeah. So we'll continue to do that. 
Well, uh, in terms of investing in new works, just just for for anybody who doesn't know, what kind of how, like what are the ways in which you're investing in the new work? Um, several. Uh, there's a ton of stuff. So, for instance, right now we're, we're embarking on a. I'll, I'll let you talk about yours in a second as one of these, but we're embarking on a massive project, which we call Project Imagination, which is we we went out to. The, the, a bunch of the leading artists of the company made a list of um, about, I think, 60 Canadian artists of all disciplines and backgrounds, all geographics, so representing all the geography of the nation, the cultures of the nation, um, the various artistic disciplines. And we went out to them with a um, provocation to come up with an idea for a project that they could make with us or on us using our resources, including human resources. Mm-hmm that would help, uh, would be something that they were passionate about that would define where we're going as a nation. Hmm. And uh, it might be looking at a something that's 7,000 years old, or it might be looking at something that is completely out of that artist's imagination hmm. and they want to come in and make. And we've got a whole bunch of those seated right now, everything from an adaptation of Animal Farm that we're working on right now to uh, adaptation of, we have, two different Canadian novel projects going on, one which is a musical and one which isn't um, novel adaptations. You talk about the one that you're doing with Diego. Yeah, so first to say that I think for most of my experience of coming out of university in the mid-90s, my understanding of what how you created a new piece of work is in this country is it starts with a playwright. Mm-hmm. And so playwright writes a play and you workshop that and it's an actor-driven process. And um, But around the world, there's, there's work being made in all kinds of ways. And I think something that Albert has opened the door to is to look at um, the how we tell story or how we make something um, process can uh, challenging that and changing the formula a little bit as to what it means to write a new piece of theater. And so that suddenly opens the door to other disciplines coming in and having some degree of authorship, really, which is, you know, pretty rare. And so for me, um, Diego Metamoros came up to me and said, you know, I want to create this piece called, uh, right now it's called Cage. And all I know is that I'm um, obsessed with studying uh, apes in captivity in cages. I'm also very interested in John Cage, the avant-garde composer, and I thought that's kind of weird, and I think that's something maybe we can look at. But he he knew that he wanted to not he wanted the process, the footprint and how we're going to get from A to B to um, allow for something for him, something new to happen, and and one of the ways is to take the playwright out of the process and, in our case, to take a director out of the process and to look at we started with looking at the methodology of how John Cage made music. And we took that methodology and we thought, how does that apply to making a piece of theater um, through a process he calls chance operations? And um, that became our diving board. We brought in Richard Farron, a sound designer, composer. And the three of us uh, got in a room and started with real things. Like we, we the company invested in um, this glass cube, this plexiglass cage, so to speak, that really is our text. Hmm. It's the thing we brought in the room to say, this is going to for sure be here. So now what is now what are we going to do? 
Um, and so <clears throat> that is no different than somebody bringing in, I've got this line to yeah. be or not to be. I, I, I think it's cool. So um, we started creating a piece that way, and, and we've gone through two workshop you know, developments, mm -hmm. which, again, is really rare to be given two weeks and then to be given another two weeks. Um, to kind of then give it another two weeks, <laughs> which is to say that all work, uh, depending on the kind of work, it requires different support, mm -hmm. and and the road to get it there is different. So we've been a, we've been given this incredible opportunity to write as we move forward, mm -hmm. starting from complete zero, nothing except these kind of this structure, mm -hmm. and from there we've we've developed uh, so far. A, 50-minute, 55-minute piece mm -hmm. that uh, now has two designers kind of performing in it with uh, but Diego Metamoros at the center of, of the narrative. And it really is actually a kind of non-narrative uh, um, um, experiential piece that is, I think, a really new addition to uh, Soul Pepper's repertoire. Hmm. I think and something that would be on, in terms of the... the Scope of what we're of the new work we're creating. Mm -hmm. This would be something that would be on what we would say on the edge of our artistic practices. Yeah. It's pushing the edge of our artistic practices. But you that and it might it won't be a thing that has a massive audience. You know, Animal Farm will probably sell more tickets mm -hmm. than Cage. In, <laughs> Animal Farm will sell more tickets than Cage. Yeah. He says they're sold out because he made a theater. That it's all design and no room for seats, but, which is what he does all the time. Um, damn designers! But but the fact is, the these works on the outside of the practice become very very important because they're the prow of the ship that takes mm -hmm. tells you where you're going. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going to put work in a cage, but it does mean that we are going to hopefully the the, the company will continue to investigate uh, the genesis of of ideas mm -hmm. and creative processes, mm -hmm. and and. You know, there's as I said, there's a list that we have some where we went strictly out to playwrights, some where we went out to mm -hmm. musicians, some where we went out to visual artists, some where we've gone out to poets as the initial or choreographers as the initial impetus for a project uh, that will then be built on. And then there's a whole series of things like, hey, we should have an adaptation of this Dickens novel or right. we should. Um, and what we do is we just we get an awful lot of the work seated. So, so I can, you know, there's no company in the country that's got as much in development. I no. think we probably have about 25 different projects in development right now that, that are in serious development. And are these all things that, that you're like, they're not imminently produced, like to be produced. You're, you're investing in, they will be the, rolled out over, uh, I mean, cage, cage, the gestation of cage will only be about a year. Some of them will have been, Animal Farm has already been around for two years. It will probably see life in the next year. There's other projects. Rose. We're starting on a, uh, we have a musical that uh, Mike Ross and Sarah Wilson are doing that's been about a year and a half mm -hmm. in gestation, and it's having a, a concert version this December, and it'll be another year before we all get together and make a production mm -hmm. of that. Um, so some of them, some of them are years and years. Some yeah. of them can be, I would say the shortest a year is about the shortest ever. On mm. a human bondage took about a year from the first idea to several drafts getting into rehearsal, building the production. Spoon River took about three years. 
Um, so, so each thing has its own way of evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do is we just kind of keep an eye on what's, so we happen to know from a last meeting that the animal farm is very close. Right. So we just start to think, okay, we got our next planning program. We might be able to get it in, in the fall. So right. it but kind of it, rolls like that. What's so exciting about this. And, and I'm sure like after how many years, the fatigue of going to the shelf and going, well, should we bring dust that one off again? Yeah, I mean, right. this is the yeah. way the majority of our country um, mm-hmm. puts their seasons together. Yeah. And so we do finally start seeing the cycle of the same. So it really becomes about, well, who are we going to get to do it differently this time? Right, right. And so, but at the source of it is is that text. And, and, and what's interesting about this and so exciting about this is it's actually the community of artists and what they need to say at the time they need to say it and what mm-hmm. they want to express, that is defining what the season should be. That the, when some, I, it's really exciting to, now it takes a huge amount of commitment and resource and you are, in a sense, it's, um, there's a gamble I imagine in it and that you just yeah. don't know. Whereas you could say, well, <clears throat> the, the amazing thing is you could just keep bringing uh, the sales or off the shelf and say, we know they'll come to this mm-hmm. and we just have to find the actor. Whereas then your motivation there is, it's not as complex and interesting as what might happen if. Right. And so what we've seen with, you know, of human bondage, for example, is we made something that even us as artists didn't know. Mm-hmm. Like we had that kind of in us in a way mm-hmm. that, that has now shaped how we want to continue to work and challenge ourselves. It's, it's, uh, kind of a blessing to both I think the, the artist and the audience because I think they kind of love like they yeah. seem to keep coming back to well it's interesting if we look at the 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 work that has been <clears throat> sort of the seminal work we, I did a sort of census with with about 40 key stakeholders artists board <clears throat> um, audience staff etc a couple years ago and and I would uh, I would say 10 of the top 15 or let's say only five of the top 15 shows that that came out as as assumed by people soul pepper stakeholders audience etc to be definitive productions only five of them were plays hmm. started as plays which hmm. to your earlier question about starting off as the classic yeah. um that that's an unheard of like that's kind of scared almost impossible to understand yeah. that because you would have thought, well, for the first five years, all you did were plays, right? Um, but they're all adaptations, or mm-hmm. and and in fact, if you know, if you think, if I think of the 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 great productions I've heard of in Western theater in my lifetime, I would like the monumental productions. I would say the only one that's a play is Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream. Hmm. Outside of that. They're all things that were adapted from a novel or adapted right. from an album or adapted from a photograph mm-hmm. or, or from a painting. Sunday in the Park with George. Right. Uh, you know, like um, uh, Les Miserables, uh, mm-hmm. um, the Mahabharata, uh, Conference of the... So many of them are coming from, uh, from around... Are coming yeah. from epic poems or novels or it's having theater makers make theater out of something that didn't start as theater. Right. There's still great productions yeah. and great plays. Yeah, yeah. But companies are defined, I mm-hmm. think, and artists are defined often by, maybe with the exception of Eva Van Hoek, um, who right now is taking 
classics and making us see them in such a startling way. But he's a once in a hundred year artist. Mm. But but very very rarely are we does a generation give us its great productions. It's amazing. But, how but it's happen. amazing how doing what then becomes really interesting is side by side in a season how this new kind of work relates and is in conversation with this older one hmm. these plays. So when suddenly your season has a mixture of that, suddenly you start, there's a kind of, there's a, two things are up, hitting up against each other and there's a bit more uh, of a dynamic as opposed to just six or seven class, what we call right. classic plays. You're starting to see mm-hmm. and, and those new works uh, start to shape how you tell those old stories. The way you, mm-hmm. I, I can't go back and do uh, Doll's House the way I've done. I've had the great luck of doing it twice, and didn't come like I absolutely went in a whole other direction the second time because it's post bondage and post all these shows that I did that that have come to I think define um, how I like to now work as an mm-hmm. artist. So those things are shaping how we tell these classic plays when we go back to them. So mm-hmm. it's all kind of feeding into itself in a really exciting way. It just takes this guy to make the dream map. <laughs> I think it's great. I think I actually think the the development, like giving the idea of just like letting everything, giving it the time yeah. to develop, is a rarity in theater. Yeah. And just yeah. to 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 allow that, I think it's a I think it's a great thing. So I, I, I oh, thank good. you for that. Thanks. You know, one of the things too that we we did in the last year and a bit, two years, is we started investing in the things that normally don't get invested mm. in, which allows for things like cage to happen. In other words, to say to artists, go into a room and play, but we're going to put a technician in the room with you and you're going to get lights mm. and you can get some technical support. Because traditionally, particularly in Canada, traditionally the, the creation of new work, the incubation of new work has been five playwrights in little offices writing a play and then reading it with a few actors and getting notes from a dramaturg mm-hmm. and going back into their little office. <clears throat> yeah. It's not about creating theater, it's about creating plays. Right. And, and there's value in that. And, mm. but, uh, if everyone's doing that, you're going to get a very bookish theater, right? You're going to get a play-based theater culture, which is what we've had mm-hmm. in English Canada for a long time. And I think we're breaking out of that now. And, and I think we're taking a leadership role in that. And I think one of the ways of doing it is actually just saying now when you play, you get these tools too. Mm. And it's just shifted things. It shifts in, a, in an important way. That right. makes sense to you? Yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, it's a rare thing, occurrence when companies will invest their resources mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's you don't immediately see the revenue come back, I assume, mm-hmm. from a workshop. So it's, you're investing, I guess, in the long term. Yeah. And yeah. it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, I think it's smart mm-hmm. because those shows become richer, but, um, but it's rare. I think it, like, I look at, I've, been talking with a number of people and people often say you know we never workshop things in canada we don't have time for that we we write it get in third draft throw it on stage and that's good yeah. but i think i think it's important to do yeah. that kind i think of we, i think our country has been caught in a in a vicious cycle mm-hmm. and in in a very um uh unhealthy relationship with the work we do and yeah. we've come to this thing where we just like anybody in a in a bad relationship, you start to make excuses and mm-hmm. you start to go, well, that's, you know, it's, there are good days. And I, 
But the other thing that we've done is is when you talk about getting caught, we've we've gotten caught in a sh- with with um, shrinking funding mm-hmm. too, or funding that has not grown at the level of the ambition of a community. Right. So now you have you know in 1970 you send funding levels and there's 10 amazing Canadian playwrights. Then you you jump ahead 40 years and there's 400 people that call themselves. Uh, working playwrights right. instead of 10. And the money, maybe you have twice as much money as you had back then, but not much more than twice right. as much money. And suddenly, everyone, so what happens is nobody generally in Canada, and this is also something that we're trying to break, nobody is writing plays for more than three people. Right. And that's, once you do that, hugely, this, yeah. this, the dramaturgy defines the scope of the stories you can tell, mm-hmm. uh, the aesthetic that you can build, like literally that you can put on a stage, mm-hmm. the geometry that you can create with yeah. one, two, or three people versus 22 people is a completely... Yeah. One is theater, and one is is story. You know, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know what it, it is. They're very, they're not, very different things because I, I know like when, when I write, I always think like, okay, so if I put more than four people on this, it's not getting produced, exactly. you know? This, which is which sort of kills the creativity it's, of it. It's a real problem. Yeah. And this doesn't happen in countries that have national theaters, mm-hmm. which is why we also have been using this national civic theater phrase in in that what we're trying to say is we've actually we've actually built up enough resources and we have to do it every year, mm-hmm. but we've actually built an infrastructure that has, you know, we have two resident designers here that are here full time mm-hmm. that also happen to be two of the most brilliant designers in the country. And then we have really, really clever student designers, always two at any given time going through the academy, who are also extraordinarily... Mm-hmm. Um, and we have an academy of 17 young artists coming up. We have a composer, eight performers, two directors, two producers, two mm-hmm. designers, and two playwrights who are all like really, really smart, active brains working in this thing all the time, plus all the other stuff. Right. So that when someone's making something and all of these resources are available, now I can say to you as a writer, okay, come in now. Think, look at, look at the resources here. Now, like Marie Brassard, when we brought Marie Brassard in on, on um, Project Imagination, you know, she's worked with Lepage and then on her own all around the world, and she knows all of that. She came here and we took her on a tour of the place you met with her, I met with her. She said, I've never seen this anywhere. Mm. Anywhere in the world have I seen this. And she came back with a proposal. She actually, of all things, wanted to work with our combat team. Mm. So our two combat people and our designers and the, and our actors eventually, but... In her world, she had never run up against people who were given resources to make, to think about combat beyond a sword fighting right. King Lear. But yeah. to actually think of it as being a piece of our creative palette. Yeah. And and uh, she, um, so, you know, who knows what that's going to be. And you touched on something that we should really just make sure we cover because the Soul Pepper Academy is training program, which I was... Um, a member of the very first one 10 years ago. Uh, if, you know, you just have to look at the, the, the basic facts are if you look at the productions in the last five years, six years, that have come to um, not totally define, but have certainly defined or um, have uh, certainly uh, audiences have grown to love and are continuing to come back to are like how much of those shows have been impacted by academy, mm-hmm. academy graduates. Look at all the shows we're taking to New York. So we're yeah. taking yeah. 
we're taking seven of it, and they're all so so and that is to say that the that it, while it's a training program it's the the what we're focusing on i think is developing uh the artist and the voice of the artist and not just making them really good craftspeople, but they're people that are graduating and have a real um artistic voice and a desire to tell story and they're shaping the stories we tell so they're not satisfied this Every generation is different. Oh my God, I sound old. But I'm, I'm. But now I'm through two uh, academies of designers that I'm training, and they all have very stri- like strong points of view on what uh, stories should be told and and how they should be told. And so they 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 bite at your heels and they clamor to get in and, and the, to open that door to tell that story and, and when Albert's made that you know that allowed Mike to make Spoon River it allowed you know so these things are coming to to define the community so the academy is all over it yeah so and not even you know some of them then go off into the world and, and bring that elsewhere and not always here 100 percent it's transient but but the 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 amazing thing is that the footprint that it's leaving is mm-hmm. pretty yeah. Well, we're at the end of our time, great. and I'd like to thank you both for thank you. This has been, it's it's been really great. Thank you very much. Thank you.